Alrighty, welcome back. Uh, my name is Rich. I'm alcoholic, and um, quite a few of us have endured the, the, the whole deal here. I'm sticking around after eating. That's always good. Um, it's like the bait in Alcoholics Anonymous: is if you're really tough it out, we feed you at the end, right? Uh, Working with others, I think that uh, at some point in this process, it became clear to me, um, other than what's just written in words. And I think when the big book, when I find myself in the book and it becomes, hopefully it's clear that it's not like a textbook to me. It's something that, um, you know, that I've experienced. They're not words on paper. They're something that means something very near and dear to me. And that once we find ourselves in this book, you know, we're just never the same again. Um, and, and I would read about, you know, this fitting yourself to be of maximum service to, to God and those around us. And it's a program of attraction. And, you know, what, right? Blah, 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 blah. It's like Charlie Brown, you know, when I'm on this side of it. Uh, and, until I start to have these experiences and, I'm, and I would start to go home and in prayer and meditation, think about, you know, why am I so drawn to you? Um, oh, it's the, it's the way that I watched that guy carry this principle into his marriage. Like, boy, is that attractive to me? I want to be like that, right? Um, how does this guy's work life go? Like, I want to be like that. Uh, and it became clear to me what's what's really going on here is. Once I make that decision that I think is initially on the front end a selfish decision, it's sort of like, boy, I want to get better and not die of alcoholism. You know, that's the first decision, right? And then, but then in the process of that happening, it just sort of becomes clear to me that this really isn't for me, um, but it is, right? Like it, it can't get to phase two if, if phase one doesn't happen like I have to recover from alcoholism before I'm of any good to the next person or I'm of any attraction to the next person uh, because until my life gets somewhat you know liberated from alcoholism uh, and I get <clears throat> some some energy and some power inside of me that becomes somewhat attractive um, my buddy referred to Eeyore you know um, I don't, th th those AA Eeyores, you know, how are you? <laughs> Fine. You know, house of happy, joyous, and free, 36 years. <laughs> you know, like, really? You're that happy about it? You know, tell your face, right? Like, w whatever that is, you know, it, it's tough to, to serve others in that condition. So I think the first part of it is kind of this selfish getting through this stuff and making it a working part of my life to my work to where my life um, shifts enough that it becomes of some use and some attraction to others. And then the flip side of it is every single step we've talked about, I've had my experience doing it and then it's like exponential what I get out of someone else doing it and doing it with them. Um, my fourth and fifth steps become better and better and better the more I do them with other people. You know, I don't really see the benefit and sometimes I could see in the other person and here in their fourth step, I'm like, man, that's it. That's what you've been trying to get to, right? And I'm doing that, I'm being that fifth step listener and you're just blowing up 
my fourth step sort you know what i mean i'm more is being revealed through you and that's like the completion of the process uh, my fifth step experience was you know exactly what was described um, I went into a meeting called As Bill Sees It, which was Jim's home group. It's like all the, I mean, if you got 40 years there, you're a newcomer. They make fun of you, you know, I make the coffee and that kind of stuff. And these guys are smoking and there's like this gauntlet of smoke you got to walk through of these old guys. And um, man, when I did my fifth step, I went into that meeting that Thursday and I'm going through the gauntlet. And these old guys, man, are smacking me on my back. And they're going, hey, kid, we heard you did your fifth step. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Hey, kid, we heard you did your fifth step. Welcome to AA. Man, and I sat down in that meeting that night, and I was a member of it. I gave myself, I felt like a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, like I, I was in and I was with you. Um, and then when I got to hear a fourth step, it's the only thing that's better. And it's hard to convince somebody of, of that. And... My, my experience for me was that um, I was reluctant a little bit to work with others uh, at first because Eeyore, what do I have to offer? I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never heard a fifth step. What if I, you know, some inflated self but what if I do it wrong? I don't want to screw them all up. And they're like, you know, hey, if they came to you, you can't screw them up. Like, like... <laughs> If they're, if they're asking you to help them, they're already screwed up. You know? Otherwise, they'd go to somebody, you know, and there is nobody in AA that, like, really knows what they're doing, right? There, there's people that either do it or don't do it. I sort of viewed working with others as, like, extra credit that, like, really good AA members sponsor people. You know, like, someday I'll do that. Um, a couple of stories that I, I just want to share about these experiences. The first guy I had uh, 10 months sober when, when a guy asked me to sponsor, he was the first guy. Um, and his name was Lionel. Uh, Lionel was African American. I grew up uh, in Baltimore outside the city under a father and a grandfather that, um, you know, had been racist for years. And, um, said and did stupid things around the house all the time around that and he would come over to my house and we would read the book and the, when I didn't know what I was doing I think this is important is my sponsor said hey they're asking you to sponsor them because they're attracted and I don't know why to something you got going on um, <laughs> and they think that you sponsor them but nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous really sponsors anybody you know we all that come before you will sponsor that guy. So anytime you get to a place where you're not sure, bring him over here or I'll come to your house and sit with you and we'll do it. And boy, when we got to my, my first three guys that I heard their fourth step, I was so I said, hey, uh, would you be offended? Are you open if my sponsor sat in with us? And they all said, no, that'd be great. Because, I mean, what's the only thing cooler than your sponsor? Your grand sponsor, right? Like, if they're, I mean, it's going to be awesome. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be super awesome. And uh, so nobody said no to that. And it made me, you know, more comfortable as I grew in understanding and effectiveness and, and my 11th and 10th step responsibilities and growing through this process. Um, my 10th step, I just want to say, in working with, with others, I give the guys the same thing I use, which is just I've, I've typed out a, a sheet that I've seen around for years of just all those questions of, 
you know, how'd I do today? Where was I resentful, selfish, dishonest? Do I owe anybody an amend? I make 365 copies, punch three holes, and put it in a three-ring binder that sits on the table next to the bed. It takes about six minutes to answer those each night. Uh, I do it on my knees so that I could write on the bed, and then well, guess where I am when I'm done? Already on my knees. Uh, it sounds like this long academic process. We're talking about like six to eight minutes you know, at the end of the night, and that's been awesome to reflect back with the guys that I work with. Uh, we look at our books like once every six months together, and again, there's something in writing. Uh, I'm not good at these like mental reflections. Uh, I don't grade my own paper very well. I always give myself an A or a B. Um, I, I have to have somebody else look at you know what I wrote, and it helps me to like if I'm looking back. You know, and I'm mad at Bob, I'm mad at Bob, I'm mad at Bob, I'm mad at Bob. I'm like, oh, okay, you've been mad at Bob like 12 out of 30 days in the month. Like maybe there's something else needs done here. Um, and I like doing that with the guys. You know, we call it 10th stepping together and, and on the phone and this is what's going on. And uh, I guess what I'm getting at is I, w I was just, I think I'm not that unique in that. And people that don't sponsor and people that offer up... Um, goofy ideas that are not in the book like hey we're just going to get coffee together and hang out and go to meetings um, they mean well and they're scared they've either never done it I mean we can't give away what we don't have they've either never worked with this material and done it themselves or they have done it themselves and just are scared like this is my first time like this is I get it that this is kind of heavy responsibility I don't take it lightly I'm not one of those people to think like we can't get them sober and we can't get them drunk. Like I've seen many people, you know, somebody say something to them that they go out and that's the last night we see them and I'm at a funeral. I've given three eulogies of guys I sponsor, not because I did anything wrong. You know, they went back to, they went back to drinking and their families loved me enough to ask me to do the eulogy because I spent years of my life working with them. Uh, I've been to countless graduations of, you know, college graduations and, Eagle Scout ceremonies for the guys' kids that I sponsor that, you know, we talk about playing a role in their life and they're, they're, they become the troop leader. And uh, my, my guy named Pat, that's his son, you know, who said, Mr. Rich, can you come to my Eagle Scout ceremony? Because I know my dad would have never been a scout leader without you. And, uh, you know, I get to sit there with the family in the front row and watch stuff like this happen. And, and Lionel's coming over, you know, with my nine months sober, a guy that I'd have never been in the same room with. I wouldn't have been allowed to have Lionel in my house growing up or the rules that we had in my house. will tell you, look, you know, that, that, that's how I grew up. My father wouldn't have allowed that. And, um, and I'll never forget what Reed, my, my sponsor, said, just start off going through the doctor's opinion with him. Uh, make sure that he really gets this idea of the physical allergy coupled with the mental obsession. Most people don't really get that, spend a good amount of time and uh, feeding some dinner and at the time I was waiting tables in a restaurant and I for some reason had some seafood paella that I brought home and I'm like alright that's what we're going to have is seafood paella and I, and I put it in these bowls and I heat it up and we're, we're doing the doctor's opinion and Lionel looks across the table at me like what in the hell is this you're feeding me and he'd never had seafood paella you know and uh, I got to go over to Lionel's house and um, you know over at Lionel's house I had some chitlins and collard greens and some stuff that I wasn't used to eating and meet his mother and grandmother and they all lived under the same roof and they'd get excited when I'd come over there. Um, I eventually got to go to this group that he liked going to in Baltimore City called the Mustard Seed Group and uh, it, it was a 
unbelievable experience. It looked like a pepper shaker and I was the lost grain of salt. And, uh, and I'm sitting in that group and they said, you know, we're going to opening day at the Orioles. Do you want to come with us? And I have this picture I keep on my, my, it's like a whole section of the Orioles stadium. that's all black and me in the middle. And, uh, you know, these guys were fast friends and, you know, and Lionel's still sober and, and having a great life. And he still calls me his, his sponsor some, you know, 11 years later. And uh, he's working with all kinds of guys. And I don't know what I, what I did and didn't do and who the heck got helped out of that deal. But I'm pretty sure it's me, you know. Um, and and I've, what came out of that relationship and these stories, it's not the mechanics of the steps and how Lionel's fifth step was or any of that. I mean, think about what's made the impact on my life that I remember 12 years later is I was introduced to an entirely different culture and friendships and barriers fell down that I'd held for years and um, and, and one more time uh, my life got to explode and then I had this guy uh, John Tobin he's uh, we called him Johnny the Chooch because he was from New York and there's a slang term in New York Chooch is like a uh, a bumble or a goofball or a jackass you know kind of kind of guy and uh so johnny the chooch you know would come out in and out of the meetings and 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 he was doing he was a longshoreman you know and a tough guy and uh those guys are and he could never get to the place to uh to be wrong it was just too hard for him to be wrong the ego wouldn't wouldn't allow that and uh you know, and I had to do his eulogy, and his family was there, and his brother was a woodcarver, you know, and carved me this beautiful uh, fish, because that's what John was, was a fisherman. And I like, there's a story um, about this this fisherman the, the, that, you know, is just to give out. The job is, there's all these people that are hungry, right? And I'm trying to tell this in a non-biblical sense. <laughs> of the loaves and the fishes, right? And I'm just supposed to not look that because it doesn't make sense, you know, that there's there's all of you and, and, and there, there's me, you know, one man with a book in his hand and a smile on their face. One man, one woman, right? Wherever we go out there into the world of AA to, to make our little difference, you know, with this chip of a book and to try to be useful. And it just feels overwhelming sometimes, right? And I'm going, oh my God, there's thousands of them. I got like one loaf of bread and I got one fish and they're going... It's never going to work out. It's never going to work out. How, well, that's no, no, no. Stop looking down at the basket. It doesn't make sense. It's spirit in the material world. One plus one equals two. In the spiritual world, that's not true. We don't know what it equals, right? And as long as I don't look down, there's enough bread and enough fish. My job's to just keep giving it out. And Johnny the Chooch loved that story, man, of the loaves and the fishes. And uh, so his brother, uh, he'd say that all the time when he was in the hospital. I'd, I'd go in a lot with him and. Like, tell me the story of the loaves and the fishes again. And he'd go over to... So I have this fish sitting on my bookshelf that his brother carved, you know. And then there's this... Uh, another guy that was a, a merchant marine that, that I worked with. His name was Drew. And, and Drew... Uh, I think the point of this story is sometimes I'd like to think that I have more to do with it one way or the other than I actually do. Uh, so there's somewhere this balance in working with others... Of for me, which is copping out, going, oh, I can't make any difference, can't get them drunk, can't get them sober, and then balancing that with the, oh, they died on me, or, oh, they're very successful, they're having a nice life, I did that, right? That, that, that feeling of, 
ownership or like I, I've got more to do with this than I do versus I've got nothing to do with this. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle um, where it's like, hey, isn't it neat that I got to be a part of God's great scheme here? I got to be a conduit, you know, from which it went through to the next person. Isn't that neat? Sure, what's nice being an empty conduit. You know, that's sound of what a bummer, right? Like the ego does not like that. It wants to go, no, no, you were a good conduit, right? And uh, so with, with Drew, he, he would work for six months. He fixed engines on these big boats, and then he'd be off for six months. And then he retired, and he got this tremendous pension um, that just came every month. It was like the worst curse an alcoholic could get is a check that never stops. He couldn't go broke. He couldn't really experience a financial anything because as soon as he did, the next month's check would come. And worse than that, he had this idea in his head as he's like 60 that he's like this Jimmy Buffett type dude, um, and, and he buys this sailboat. And he's telling me, and this is after in and out and in and out and AA. And I finally got him through the steps. I mean, he was, he was just through the steps that he presents me with this brilliant plan that he's buying. And, and it was, uh, I'll say this, because there's a big difference between being sponsored and reporting facts. He was just reporting, you know, sponsor, being sponsored is, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Right to the board of directors. They weigh in and come back and tell me what they're thinking. We think this might be a better action. Reporting facts is, hey, sponsor, yesterday I bought a boat. You know, well, what do you want me to do about that now? Right. You're just reporting back what you already did. That is not, you know. So he tells me he bought this big sailboat. He's got his house on the market. And he's going to sail down to Panama, and he's heard about this place, Boca del Toro, and he's going to anchor this thing up, man, and the sunsets are going to go down, and he's going to live out his day sober on this sailboat in Boca del Toro, wherever that is. And, uh, and I'm thinking, like, holy cow, like, couldn't be a worse plan. Like, you just got through the steps, man. Like, you want to, like, get a year or two or, you know... But I knew enough to not say that by this point because I tried a lot. And I think that's probably my deal with working with those. I just try a lot. Anybody that asks, I, I try to help however I can. And, and I've learned, I've grown in understanding and effectiveness by trying. You know, go, wow, that worked. When I, when I tell the sponsee this story about the allergy, their li eyes light up. When I explain it this way, they fall asleep and drool on my table. I'm going to not tell them that story, right? And, and all along the way, it, it goes like that. So I knew that it says, you know, we can stay sober anywhere. I go through all that with Drew. And I said, why don't you go down there and check it out first before you just throw them all in? He comes back and he says, they got some meetings, but they're, they're Spanish. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's the inland on the actual Boca del Toro. They got nothing. And I was out there on the island, and I, and I had the book, and nobody really understands what I'm saying because they speak Spanish, and I'm doing a poor job of like explaining it. I just can't get anything going. And uh, we're like, all right. So we go through the exercise. I said, we're going to you know, go online here. We're going to order a case of Spanish big books, and we're going to put them on the boat with all your other earthly possessions, and you can go down there and, and see what happens. And so we load up thing, and it was in Annapolis, and he had sold his house. And I mean, I'm thinking, this is terrible. And, and off he goes with the everything and his case of Spanish big books into the sunset to go be Jimmy Buffett. 
And I don't hear anything from Drew for like four years, man. And I know he's like dead in the islands, you know. And I'm having a bad day at work and things are happening and judges are ruling things I don't like. And I'm in the hallway and the phone rings and it's a weird phone number. And on the other end of the line, is, I answer it. Some guy says, hola, me llamo Juan, yo soy alcoholico. My name is Juan, I'm an alcoholic. I speak Spanish because of my former career path. And uh, <laughs> he hands the phone to this next guy that goes, hola, me llamo Paco, yo soy alcoholico. Who hands the phone to the next guy? Hola, I am a Juanita, yo soy alcoholico. This goes on for about five minutes. I talk to about 14 people. And I'm thinking, what in the hell's going on here? <laughs> and the next thing I know, I got this goofy voice. Hey, Rich, this is Drew. I did it. I started a meeting. This is the Boca del Toro group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And uh, the guy was still sober, and they got AA. I'm Boca del Toro. And... Uh, if, <laughs> If I ever go to his sailboat in his case of big books, right? Be you one man with this book in your hand. And that always cracks me up because I would have bet every last penny against Drew, right? And uh, we, we just don't know. And some of the best experiences of, of my entire life uh, come from these guys and, and their families. And what happens, I want to, the last one I'll tell is, uh, my mom, before she retired, um, had some other school teacher c complaining that she was leaving her husband when she got home. He was driving around drunk with their kid in the car. She found vodka bottles under the seat again. And, you know, this was it. She's taking the kids and she's out of there. And my mom, um, I guess from coming to the group and being the cookie mom, had been paying attention. And, and she says, well... My son used to drink like that. He found some people that would help him. And while he's not going to, you know, come running, if your husband calls and says he wants some help, I can almost promise you my son will do anything he can to help him. And now this would have been nice if my mother had told me that this had taken place, but it never came up. So I don't know if it was a day or two later that this guy calls and says, my name's Pat and I can't stop drinking. And I'm like, well, how did you get Well, Your mother works with my wife at the school, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and I don't know that all of that happened. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't quit drinking? He goes, I can't quit drinking. And I mean, well, what do you mean? You're like, you're like a, a whip or something? I mean, have you tried to quit and you can't quit? Like, you make a decision, you're like some kind of fairy guy. I mean, what, what do you mean? Like, can you tighten your belt up and, and, and do this? And he's, I've tried everything. I can't stop drinking. And I'm on the other end of the phone, like, yeah, <laughs> right? Like, just, just reeling them in, man. And uh, I mean, this guy's screaming at me about how he can't stop drinking. And, uh, and I'm loving it, right? And, and I'm like, well, I mean, come on, what have you tried? He's like, I'll do anything you tell me. I'll do anything, except if it has anything to do with God or Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a good one. And uh, I said, well, why don't you just on Wednesday night, if I come get you, I got a couple of guys in my living room that we just have uh, figured out a way that hanging out together, you know, we don't, we don't drink. And this guy turns out to be a professor at the college, you know, so I got an intellectual one. And we sit around in my living room for three straight weeks reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous He's getting, he's liking it. He loves going home and reading because the academic approach is something he could relate to rather than like sharing. You know, that to him was like weirdo stuff. Um, 
but to sit around and to read a book and to go about it in that way uh, was something I guess he could relate to. And on week three, he was leaving my house. He said, you got a second? And I said, yeah. You're looking good. You know, you're starting to smile. We noticed you have teeth. You ever notice that with the new people? I mean, isn't it cool when you first know that they have teeth? They start smiling and laughing. And once they're laughing, we got them. You know, they're having fun. And Pat smiles. I said, yeah, you look good. What's the question? And he goes, are you sure this isn't Alcoholics Anonymous? <laughs> so that was five years ago. You know, now you can't shut up, Pat, about God or the book or, or Alcoholics Anonymous. So there is no, I guess the point of that is that, you know, I don't have a way of, of sponsoring. I've, for, for me, like what's good for the goose isn't necessarily good for the game. You know, they're, they're all different. And um, one person may love the meetings and one person may need a little men's group and then we get into the meetings or whatever. But the one constant throughout all of it is that I understand now that this is a part of my, it is not extra credit. Um, anyone that's ever gone back out when they come back in, um, I don't ask him about praying. And me, I ask, how many people were you sponsor? Have you ever taken a man or woman all the way through the beginning of the steps to the end? Have you ever done that? Have you ever passed this thing on totally and seen that light come on in somebody else's eyes? And when the answer is no, I'm almost like, well, of course you got drunk. How could you not? I mean, that's what the book says is the bright spot of our life and, and kind of completes the circle and makes my, not to be overly dramatic, but I honestly believe with every fiber of my being is that this is why God spared my life. It's why I'm not in that prison for 46 to 60 years. It's why I'm not dead. It's why my life doesn't totally suck. My life gets, my life gets to not suck to get you to come to me to say, hey, your life doesn't suck. How did you do that? And then it's my absolute responsibility and job to sit down with you and show you. And because of that, we get to go on and have these miraculous lives together. And I have something that I've never had in my whole life called a purpose. A guy that's been spared from the living death of alcoholism to be able to pass it on to the next person. And my most important business card says nothing about what I do for between 9 and 5 o'clock. And you all have the same business card. It says, Rich Bruckner, agent of God. Bob, agent of God. Kathy, agent of God. Samantha, agent of God. And isn't that what we really do? Isn't that what each and every one of our jobs really is? We took the most important charge of our life when we made that third step decision to carry this message to the next sick and suffering alcoholic. And because of that, I get to live. And it turns out I get to live well. Thanks. Rich, thank you. Appreciate that. That very first guy that came and talked to me when I was in a detox, he was carrying out that 12th step and that fifth tradition and that he was giving up of his time to come in there and talk to me and I don't remember everything that that guy told me but one thing that he that I do remember is that he told me that when I got better he hoped that I would pass it on and I really didn't have a clue what he was talking about but that that came from my very first I know today that he got that right out of our literature 
that you know that, that that's what it tells tells you to tell people and um, but I remember that that he told me he says I hope that you'll pass this on when you get better if you get better and um, you know what happened to me I mean almost immediately I was given the ability to help people in that my, my first sponsor when I would go to him and start crying man she ain't coming back and, I suspect now that she's not only sleeping with my cousin, but some guy named Jungle. And uh, that, that's not good for your for your self esteem when your wife's sleeping with a guy named Jungle. And uh, I don't know what all that means, but I'm never quite. If you're out there, Jungle, I would like to meet you. I, um, and and I, you know, I would sit there and cry about her not coming back and how you know how bad things are. And I'll never forget it. He said. He said, you got a driver's license, don't you? I was like, yeah. He said, well, you're one of the few young people in AA that have driver's license right here. You got that old 82 Grand Prix that Shaggy's letting you borrow that you sucked on his exhaust pipe up. You're still driving that around, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. He said, you know, there's a halfway house right down the road. And those guys probably could use a ride to a meeting. And here I am, you know, I'm wanting to go and, you know, and cry about my problems and talk about all the things that are bad. And he immediately told me that, you need to go help somebody. And you know what would happen? I'd go pick those guys up at that halfway house and we'd drive to the meeting and by the time I got to the meeting, I'm like, my God, I'm glad that my wife's sleeping with my cousin. And talking about after listening to their problems, that, my God, I don't have a whole lot of problems. And that would happen time after time, you know, and um, that was my first real experience in trying to, trying to help other people. And I, I quickly got, that, that same sponsor, I quickly got involved in, in correctional work and uh, taking a meeting into to a prison. I was about I was sober about three months. You can't do that anymore in North Carolina. You got to be sober for for about a year or more before you can before you can get into a prison. But um, you know, he said, you know, there's some guys that don't have access to meetings like we do. We probably should go carry the message to them. And and I started doing that. And, I mean, I'd get in there, you know, I spent all my life trying to get out of that or avoid going into that place. And now I'm going in there and, and we'd get in there and we'd talk to those guys and we'd have a meeting and then we'd leave. And I mean, I would just amazingly feel, just like the, the literature says, I'd feel lifted up. And all the things that were wrong with me and all the things that I thought were never going to get worked out, they just they just were not a big deal by coming out of there. And um, I had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good experiences with, uh, with carrying the message in the prisons, but uh, when I first started going in there, there was a guy in there that would come to the meeting, and he, he participated for a long time and um, you know, appeared to be serious about it. But he came into the meeting one night, and he's like, yeah, he says, this is going to be my last meeting. He says, the governor has called for me, and you know, typically if you hear an inmate say something like that, it, 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 it's typically not true. Yeah, the governor's called for me, and I got work to do up there, and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Well, anyway, he, he was gone next week. He didn't show up. And then the week after that, he didn't show up. The guy just disappeared. I often wondered what happened to him. About three, four years later, I'm at a meeting in another town, and I go into the meeting, and the guy comes up to me and says, You don't remember me, do you? I was like, well, as a matter of fact, Mike, I do remember you. And it was that guy that was in the, that was in the prison meeting there. He's like, yeah, he says, I left there and uh, 
I made honor grade and I, I started doing work at the governor's mansion, taking care of the loan and all that, and I, I was able to get out early. And he was the GSR of this group. And he, he went on to tell how, by me and that other guy going in there and taking that meeting, how it changed his life and how it gave him hope and how he knew that, that he could get better and not have to return back to prison if he didn't want to. I don't take any credit for that. We were just, we were just carrying out our mission. We were carrying out what the step tells us to do. And um, you know that guy now is, works in the same prison that he was locked up in and has been sober for about 28 years and has, had a, has gone on to have a good life. He's actually uh, also uh, like a, uh, a professor at East Carolina University part-time, does work over there, has graduated from there and all that, and uh, has lived a good life. I'll tell you another story. I was in there one time, and you got to be careful what you say from the podium. I was giving a talk in, in, the, in this prison one time. There were about 100 guys in there, and I was telling this story. Uh, you've heard this story? Okay. I was, I was telling this story about how me and, uh, me and this guy were down in Fayetteville one night, and we robbed a guy. And I don't know why I had never told that story before. I guess I was trying to be cool in front of everybody there in the prison. <laughs> and um, so I, I told the story, and I guess I gave a little too much detail. <laughs> and after the meeting, this guy walks up to him and he says, he said, were y'all driving a red Hyundai? <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, we were. It was the guy we robbed. And, uh, and you, uh, yeah. Uh, but it, <laughs> so you know what? I made an amends to him there in the prison, and we, we, we got to a point where we were laughing about it, and it was, it was pretty comical, but I made an amends to him, and we talked about it, and um, I got out of there just in, I mean, I got out of there unscathed. Um, but you know, and I don't, that guy disappeared. I mean, I, I don't know whatever happened to him, um, but I learned you gotta be careful what you say from the, from the podium. I was sponsoring a guy in there one time, he was a Muslim. And um, he wanted to he wanted to work with steps. And in this particular prison, they never let a volunteer come in outside of the meeting to do anything with inmates. It was just you go in for the meeting and then you had to leave. And I I had convinced them to let me come in uh, outside the meeting to work with this guy one on one. And at the prisons you got you got custody whose job is basically to protect the the public. And then you got these program people that claim that they're there to rehabilitate and to help people. Well, so the program people are the ones that approve this. Custody was always against them, and they hated us coming in there. And so anyway, they and then they had to give up one of the lieutenant's offices for us to meet, which they didn't they didn't care for too good. But so I'm working with Hakeem, and we're reading the book, and we're under supervision in that there's a there's a glass uh, glass on the door where you're looking into the office, and there was always a guard there watching us. And we get to the point in the book where it's the third step. I'm like, all right, Hakeem, and the guy's a Muslim. I said, we're going to get down on the uh, on our knees and pray this prayer. Are you okay with that? He's like, yeah. He says, I'm ready to do it. So we got, <laughs> and there's guards outside in the hallway looking, right? And this is a pretty tough prison, and you don't you don't have a whole lot of contact, physical contact with people, and much less get on your knees. <laughs> Um, so anyway, we get down on our knees and we're getting ready to pray. Man, that guy, the guard, sees us, and I don't know what he thinks we're doing. I don't know if he thinks we're making love or if we're fighting or what. But he busts in the door and he's like, "Hey, what are y'all doing?" And I'm, I'm sort of sitting there and I look. I'm like, "We're praying. You want to join us?" And uh, 
he, uh, he didn't like it too good, but uh, he, he stepped out and he let us finish. And, uh, you know, that guy, that guy ultimately did those steps, and I watched him, you know, take that inventory and make amends as best as he could to people from, from inside a prison wall. He later got out and, you know, was living a good life. The, you know, the ninth step in the book, once, once we get done with that ninth step, it's our obligation to help other people. I mean, it's, it's kind of implied or, or uh, you know, recommended, or not recommended, but it's kind of implied that, hey, you're going to help other people. The, there's some stuff in the book that actually describes a spiritual awakening. I can't believe I'm opening up this book. But <laughs> it, you hear people argue and fight over what a spiritual awakening is and what a spiritual experience is. I was always taught that the book describes it pretty good right here where it says we'll be amazed before we're halfway through we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness we'll not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it our past becomes our greatest asset Rich talked a lot about that right? That the things that we, we're ashamed of embarrassed of we're going to take to our grave are the very things that we use to, to be change agents and to be agents of God and to help other people and to change other people's lives. We'll comprehend the word serenity and no peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Right? One of the main things about the steps, it talks about in Bill's story, it's the destruction of self-centeredness. That's why we really take those first nine steps is to destroy self, to get over, overcome that over-concentration on ourself and that isolation and that feeling of difference that we have towards the world. And when we take those nine steps, we should be at somewhat at one with the world and at one with people around us. And we're given the power to actually help other people. We're given the power to change, to, the book says, to avert misery and death for others by sharing our experience. That's what that guy did for me when he came into that detox and started sharing his story and his experience. There was something that changed in me when I heard what that guy was saying. And I realized that he had been right where I'd been. He was an agent of God that day. He was coming in there basically carrying some, uh, the good news that if I was like him, I could get better. It says our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. One thing I forgot to tell you, when I made that amends to my employer, I haven't stolen anything since that day. Every once in a while I'll take a pen, but I always take them back later after I've used them for a little bit, right? I'll take them back. <laughs> but ever since that, that moment, I have never worried about money. I started taking a whole new attitude towards it. I started giving out money. I started giving stuff away. Even when I didn't have but a little, I'd give away a little. My sponsor taught me that. And, you know, by, by taking a little different attitude of it, it lost its power over me. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So that describes the spiritual awakening that happens as a result of those steps. 
My job now is to share that spiritual awakening with other people, to share what happened to me, to share what helped, what helped me overcome my alcoholism, what helped me overcome that, that uh, isolation. And I'm uniquely qualified to help another alcoholic. I am uniquely qualified to help another alcoholic. God has given us the ability to do that. We got people to take care of the cancer patients and we got people to take care of, of other folks and people with whatever it is, right? I happen to be a guy that has recovered from alcoholism and I can help another alcoholic better than, than a non-alcoholic can. And it's, it's, it's my responsibility to share that with other people. Um, the book says, and one of the, to, to me, one of the, the most important statements in this book is actually in Bill's story. And if you want to know why people relapse, this is basically why. It says, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. That tells me that i got to continue to perfect my spiritual life. i got to continue to enlarge my spiritual life. I don't get to a place where, well, I've been sober for 20 years, I can, I can stop doing that. I've been sober for a little while, I think I'll just sit here and let everybody else do the work. Yeah, I, you know, I, well, I've done all these things with, these, with, with spiritual stuff and I've been up on top of the mountain meditating with yogi or whoever and I'm good. I don't, I don't need any, this anymore. This tells me I've got to continue to grow. I've got to continue to maintain that spiritual connection with that power. We do that through 10, 11, and 12. And by, you know, keep looking at ourselves and keep taking that inventory of ourselves. Uh, keep trying to grow and to get better. And by carrying this message to other people, you know, it's, it's always fascinated me that Bill Wilson stayed sober for six months, surely just on helping other people. Must be something to it. You know, and uh, just by trying to reach out and help other people, he was able to, to stay sober. And you can't, you can't read more than two or three pages in the literature without talking about helping other people. I mean, it's, it's, it's all throughout that book. And I'd submit to you that AA is not a selfish program. I understand that it's selfish in the sense that when I first get sober, I got to do certain things to 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 get sober and to to kind of get some stability in my life. But at some point, that should change, and that it becomes unselfish, and that I I I, I give what I've got. I try to give more than I take. I go out of my way to help other people because that's what was done for me, and that the that what we live on is an altruistic plane that it's selfless regard for others, and that that's, that's what we're about. I really got sober because people took an interest in me. People went out of their way to help me. People often welcomed me into their homes. They welcomed me at the group. They drove me around. They helped me with stuff. That, that personal interaction, that human contact, is really what saved me. And it was the first time in my life that I saw that somebody really cared about me. First time in my life that that you know that it looked like people were actually interested in me without anything, wanting anything in return. And I, mean, I tell you, we could sit here all day, and I could tell you just some fascinating stories about helping people, some comical stories about helping people. Um, and I mean, we could we could talk all day about it. One of the things that Rich talked about, very very important, is to bring the family into the help. 
you know, and that it's all in the book as well, that the family was brought in this way of life, and we don't exclude the family. And, you know, it's important for me to, to offer a spiritual way of life or at least guide the family if, if they're interested and if they want it. Um, I'll, share, I'll share a story with you and, um, before we, uh, I guess, do the Q&A or the Ask It Basket. Don't forget to write those questions on there now. Rich wants to answer all of them. Um, I'm sitting there with a guy I sponsor one day, and uh, the you know the other thing is I'll start. Um, the other thing is if you, if you if you work with a lot of people, you have a lot of stuff happen. I've had sponsees break into my mom's house and steal all her money. I've had sponsees break into my car while I'm in a meeting take my cell phone, take my wallet, take other things. I, I mean, I, I've been to numerous jails and picking people up and helping people out. And I've been accused of stuff that I've never actually done. And most of the time, when somebody accuses you of something you've done, uh, well, a lot of times the people that you sponsor will say stuff about you that you ever had never actually done. Um, anyway, me and this guy were sitting sitting there. This is one of the guys that actually broke into my mom's house. We were sitting there one day, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but he's like, you know, it says here in, in the, the step that we're supposed to carry the message. I was like, well, yeah, that's right. That's what it says. He says, wouldn't that imply that we would take it somewhere? And I'm like, well, yeah. So we, we, we take it to a lot of places. He says, well, there's a, there's a homeless guy in town that lives out in the woods, and I think we should carry the message to him. And this guy was was like a town drunk. And he, he had turned into a hermit. He'd been in the woods for about eight years. And we didn't I didn't know that at the time, but this guy was just like compelled to, it was a lay on his heart to go help this guy. And I'm like, okay, I said, well, we need to do what the book says. The book says if you have a prospect that you should find out all you can about him. And that maybe you should talk to the family. So I told the guy, I'm like, track down his family and see what you can find out. And then we'll make a decision whether to go see him or not. So he tracks, he tries to make some calls. And he actually got in touch with one of his guy's nieces. And come to find out, him and his brother used to be pretty well-off welders in this town. And they had a business. And both of them were bad drunks. And one of the brothers uh, got killed, died, and the other guy... Name was Billy, lost the welding business, and basically became a town drunk, and moved out into the woods. And he'd been living in the woods for eight years. And Denise said that she thought that he had tried to get sober before, and maybe had got some help, but she wasn't really sure. So I'm not recommending this to anybody. We made a decision we were going to go talk to the guy. And uh, so four of us, armed with a big book and a grapevine, we decided we're going to go talk to Billy. And we prayed about it and, and thought about it before we did it. So we walk into the woods out where he lives. And now this story might get a little mystical, but I think everybody, I think I'm probably preaching to the choir today. But this is a true story. We start walking in the woods where, where he lives. And you get in there and there was a, like on the left side of his cutout space in the woods. I don't know how many there were, but hundreds, maybe thousands of Richard Wild Irish Rose wine bottles that he had stacked up. And they were, they were in between two trees and there was this big wall there of them. And straight ahead was this like little shack that he had built 
that had like some it had some books and some stuff in it and a chair and behind that was a creek and he'd cut the creek out where the water would come up and that's where he bathed and he wasn't around and all of a sudden we heard some noise and over on this side he had, he had dug out this like a grave in the ground and he had this little structure that he, this little tin wall he had, or roof he had put over top of it, but he was in there sleeping and um, he wakes up and he's laying in there he doesn't come out so we just kind of go up and kneel down next to it and we're sitting there and we, we basically tell him who we are and why we're there and we thought that you know asked him if, you know, if he had had a problem with drinking and of course we knew he did and he started talking a little bit to us and we just shared some of our we kind of went around and shared our you know our, our stories and our experience and he said that he had he had tried or had been to a few meetings the best that he could remember years ago but that uh, you know he really didn't know much about the program so we talked with him for a little while and he was all haggard up you know he had this big old beard and his hair was all long and straight looked like a hermit and we left the big book in the grapevine with him and we asked him if we could come back and talk to him later. And he says, yeah, he says, that would be fine. A couple days later, we go back and we walk in and the little, the little shack there that he had built, he was sitting there in the chair. He had shaved. And he looked different and he was reading the big book. And he was like, his eyes were like glowing a little bit. He's like, man, he says, I'm glad to see you guys. I've been waiting for you. And we sat there and we talked to him about alcoholics Anonymous, talked to him about the, the solution that we had found. And uh, he, was, he was just really, really you know, excited. And um, we tried to get him to go to a meeting. He, he wouldn't have anything to do with that. He was just too scared to, to really be around people. And over the course of the next couple of months, uh, two of the guys in particular took an interest in him and would go visit with him. Um, pretty daily or every other day and bring him food and talk to him and read the book to him and stuff like that and he got sober and he never did come out to a meeting but if it was about four months after that he um, he was walking uptown and got hit by a car and died and the best that we've been able to tell he died sober we had the guy that that Wanted, initially wanted to go talk to him, did a little research and found that he did die sober. And I, I tell that story to say this, that that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. I mean, that it's about reaching out and trying to help somebody. And, you know, he died, but he did not die without knowing there was a solution. He did not die without knowing that there was a way out and that somebody cared about him. And he actually told us that we were the first people that had ever come visited him like that. He'd been in there for years. You would have thought somebody would have gone in there and talked to him. Uh, that we were the only ones that ever reached out like that. And I'd like to think that it changed his life. He, you know, he did not die without knowing there was a solution. Now here's where the story gets a little, a, a little, a little funny. So, uh, not long after that, I'd gone through that stuff with work and with that divorce and. I'm dating my wife, and I, I proposed to my wife, and we got a date to get married. As the date gets closer to, to me, uh, to us getting married, I'm getting scareder and scareder because I'm all that old stuff from my first marriage is coming back, right? And I'm thinking that she's going to be just like her, 
and she's going to cheat on me and this is going to happen and almost to the point where like man I, I can't do this and my very first sponsor I'm getting resentful at him because I think he's talking about me in meetings you know our mind will make stuff up that just absolutely ain't true and uh, and by this time I'm uh, I'm ingrained in the book and to, to, to his defense I'm getting a little mechanical with the book with people and um, but it's helping them and it's saving their life and so I start bad mouthing him right uh, and, and to other people in the public I got resentment over him and um, so I write this stuff down it was it was more fear stuff right and I um, I mean I got really scared to where I'm like wondering if I really need to get married and so I met with my sponsor was in England at the time running some marathon or something I don't know what he was doing but I, so I met with his sponsor and we rode around that day and I shared this stuff with him about my fear about getting married and um, about how I'm, you know, I'm focusing on my, my ex-wife and all of her shortcomings and kind of putting them on, her, on, on a new wife and, or fiancé and these resentments I got at, at, at my first sponsor and I, I shared it with him he shared some feedback with me and one of the things that he told me to do was I needed to go make an amends to my first sponsor, right? And I'm like, okay, I can do that. I'm, I, I understand that. And, and he told me that, you know, you need to realize that you can't, you know, again, you can't let the actions of one person, you know, dictate how you feel about everybody. And that, you know, that you, you, you've been with your fiance for, for a pretty good time now and none of that stuff's ever happened. Why do you think it's going to happen? And that all that's fear-based, you got to trust in God. And so I dropped him off and, he, was, he lived about an hour from, I was speaking that night at, at this group that was my, my original home group. So it's about an hour drive, so I'm driving there. And as I drive, at, while I'm on the, way, on the drive there, I got to drive by the woods where Billy lived. So I'm like, I'm just going to ride in there and just see if this stuff's still there or what's going on. And so I, I get off the, the highway there and go into, pull off the road and go start walking into the woods. And... I don't know how long it had been that he, since he died. I'm, I'm guessing about maybe a year at this point. And I walk in, I start walking into the woods, and it's like he never left. Those wine bottles are still there. That shack's still there. The bid's still here. The creek's still back there with the hole in it, with the, the dig out, the dugout, and um, I'm just looking around and. I go into that shack where he, where he was sat and where he was reading that book that time went, and some of his stuff was still there. And I looked down, and that big book that we had taken him was sitting there on the ground. And I'm like, hmm. I picked the big book up, and I look at it. I open it up, and my first sponsor's name is written in that book. And he had nothing to do with us visiting that guy. And he had given, the guy that I sponsored, he had given that book to, to that guy. And his name was written in there, and there was a note in there from his sister who had given him the book. And, man, it just floored me. I'm realizing, man, that guy has done nothing but try to help me. And here and now, he has indirectly helped this homeless guy. And I'm worried about what I think he is thinking about me. And it was like that, the, the whole resentment thing just, just, just went away gets better. I'm looking around in this shack and this is an absolutely true story. There's, there's, this guy's got like photographs 
in there. And I grab this little stack of these old photographs and I start looking. And <laughs> there's a picture of my first wife on a horse riding through in a parade. This town there was Benson and they had this annual Mule Day thing. If you've never been to it, you ought to go check it out. And she, her family, her family had horses and she rode in every year. And I'm telling you, he had a picture of her right there in that thing. And I mean, I am freaking out. And it just, it was, it was unbelievable. I'm like, and all that fear that I had and all that just not trusting in, in God, it just, it just kind of went away. And I realized that that's the past. And that I don't have to bring the past into today unless I just want to. And all that fear that I had about getting married and, and all the, 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 the final kind of resentments and stuff that I had towards her, they, were just, they just disappeared. And um, I basically got down on my knees and prayed and did, did, did what I would say, the seven-step prayer with, with Billy's spirit there in, in that shack. And it gets even better. So I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I get in the car and I go to, to my speaking engagement and I pull up there, I get out of the car and guess who the first person I bump into is? First sponsor. appreciate him and made the amends for, for bad mouthing him and uh, got through that and th those are and you know I've never had any ill will towards the guy since and we're, we're good friends today and he, he I, you know I realized that that I get in my own way and that my mind is just a terrible place to be sometimes it just makes things up when I try to when I try to manage it and you know, what I realize is that, that you can't have experiences like that by staying at home watching Jeopardy. You, you can't have experiences like that by not participating in everything that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. And that Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. It's not something that I go to. You know, if all you do is go to meetings, then that's all you do is go to meetings. And a meeting is not Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is the 12 steps and the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts and applying all those, all of all of that that power into our lives, and that when I'm willing just to get out of myself and to try to help somebody, I mean, all that stemmed from one guy's willingness to carry this message to a homeless guy, and you know, through that, people's lives were transformed, and that that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about, and you know, it, it became clear to me. Rich already said it, but I, I wasn't sober very long before I started, you know, thinking about life and pondering my, you know, why am I here? And it, it became clear to me that, you know, that you know, I often wondered why I survived that, that chaotic, rebellious life that I lived. And other people don't. And I don't understand. I don't know the answers to that question. But it came to me that I believe that God got me through that chaotic, crazy life because there was work to be done. And that he, he got me sober and got me on the foundation of recovery in hopes that I would try to help somebody else, in hopes that I would try to live this program as a way of life, in hopes that I would try to carry this message to others. And that's where I found my purpose. Most people in society go through life without knowing what the purpose is. And it's hard to, it's hard to be free, and it's hard to have a, a, a happy, joyous, good life 
if you're not fulfilling the purpose that God created you for. And I found that in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got here, man, I just wanted a little car to get back and forth to my job and for my wife to come back. And it's already been said here, what I was given was an absolute new way of life. And I was given the keys to the kingdom. And it's up to me to use them. So I appreciate y'all listening to us today. Um, Are we, huh? We're doing asket basket. Did anybody do any asket baskets? Yeah, Judy's going to come around with the basket. So, just throw your questions in there. Alessa. Yeah. And if you haven't written a question and you want to write one while they're, they're answering some questions, just uh, raise your hand. You can come. Someone will come around with basket and put it in there. don't answer your question it, it doesn't mean that might mean we're out of time and it might mean you know that your question sucks no. <laughs> <laughs> oh we just don't want to answer <laughs> oh that's long yeah <laughs> working with others it describes working with families all too often you hear that's for Al-Anon simply send them to Al-Anon Share any experience you have working directly with the families. You started to hit on that. You want to talk about that? So when I sponsor a new person, I, I actually ask to meet with the family. And I, I offer myself to, to, to meet with them. And particularly, you know, a lot of times the family doesn't know what's getting ready to happen if, if the person commits to AA. And that you know they're going to be gone a lot to meetings. They're going to have you know a, a lot of time. A lot of people calling them on the phone, and to the family that can look suspicious. And even the AA activity of going to meetings and stuff can sometimes look as irresponsible as they're drinking. And so I always try to meet with the family to let them know that hey, you know the guy's going to be gone a lot going to meetings. He's going to be on the phone a lot. We, we, you know we might haul him off the stuff and and try to just kind of help them to understand a little bit about that and then and then I think it's important for us to, to to talk about the book and encourage them to read the book and read to read what's in there and certainly to guide them towards Al-Anon if there's if there's good Al-Anon groups in the in the area um, I always invite them to our open speaker meetings I think it's important for the family to, to come to open speaker meetings to kind of understand a little bit um, and you know, I'll, I'll I'll get involved with the family as, as as much as they want me to get involved. It's I don't I don't avoid that. Only thing I want to add, if I uh, if I sponsor you, and um, chances are we're going to meet with your family. Uh, I'm going to meet with your wife, uh, with them, without you. I find out far more, and the book says this far more about what's going on in the guy's life from them than from him. I mean, his, his version is so deficient usually in the, in, the, in the beginning, and that's where you know that I could be helpful. And just um, 
You know, when a, when a woman starts coming to Al-Anon, the husband thinks that, I mean, when a woman starts coming to AA, the husband at home, uh, in, in their head, usually trumps up the idea that AA is full of, I mean, everybody in here, all the men are Richard Gere. That's right. And it's important, you know, and that, that's why she's going all the time, is it's just full of these handsome studs, you know. And, uh, and that's why she's going. And for the guy, you know, that the, the, the wife thinks that it's just full of supermodels. And, and that's why you're going to AA all the time. And it's important to bring them so that the, the husband can see that, you know, this isn't a threatening environment. It's mostly bald, fat guys. Uh, you got nothing to worry about, right? And, uh, my group. Right. <laughs> then you got something to worry about if, you know, you're a husband. <laughs> and while we're making fun of each other, I just, that last, <laughs> that last story he told about, you know, finding the picture of, of his wife in the woods where the guy was I said has it ever occurred to you that maybe you met jungle (laughs) (laughs) all right you get glad I got clear on that that could be (laughs) Uh oh this is one let's see how do you distinguish between if it's meant to be it'll be and if you want it go get it That's heavy. That's heavy. That's man. deep. That's that's heavy. How do you distinguish from if it's meant to be? It'll be. I don't, I don't think I don't think that I do a lot of distinguishing. Again, there's there's a lot of people that think that the way that I live life is ridiculous, but I really do just ask the board of directors what I'm supposed to be doing. I pray that morning. I ask I ask for direction, and then if I'm unsure, I ask those those guys, my sponsor and and his buddies. You know, hey board, what do I do next? And they'll say, hey, leave it be. Or go do this, and then I go do it, and it kind of takes me out of the. I'm not a good decider. That's George Bush stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just, just take good principled action. I mean, I'm a guy. I'm like Rich. I I run just about everything I do by my sponsor or his sponsor or somebody in the program, and it's just never failed me. It's never failed me. I I, uh, I mean, I've never been given bad direction by a few trusted people in alcoholics Anonymous. I don't sit around and wonder what God's will is for me. I don't wake up in the morning and wonder, you know, what my purpose is. I, I know. And, for, I mean, for me, God's will is just an action. I mean, I don't think God cares if I'm a painter or a lawyer or an unemployed trash picker-upper. How am I living and what am I doing? And, uh, you know, that, that's what's important. God's will is an action. To be deciphered by those folks, too, because I've also gotten gone down those roads at times where it's uh i forget that it's god myself and another human being you know is that triangle because i I can promise you that god and i alone and together will be drunk on a bar stool uh it's also when i get you know in those periods of heavy meditation really getting into this you know me and god it's remarkable that god's voice sounds just like mine AA talks always sound so neat and tidy. Outside of the significant experiences, what has the rest of it been like? The Paul Harvey. You want to tell him the rest of the story? Well, now I have to say, I don't think what we've shared has been neat and tidy. I mean, we've, we've shared some, some serious shortcomings that we've done sober. We've shared some tragic things that have happened sober. I mean, life will visit you. And now, I... I it, it is true that a lot of times you hear AA talks, and a lot of times when we talk, it sounds like, man, we got sober and life has just been perfect. 
Um, that's absolutely not the case. I mean, life's going to visit you no matter who it is. Um, you know, what we do about it is, what, is what's important. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if that answers that question or not. But And I think to a little extent that um, from doing this, and if you do it with some purpose and, and, and you're bringing to it, there is some tidiness to it. We were talking about it before. Uh, anytime I'm asked to talk anywhere that's that's recorded, my job is to bring a copy of that back to my sponsor, and he always listens to it to make sure I didn't lie, change facts, or or change. If there's new people, they always come on instead of just the, oh, can I? Hi, nice to meet you. It was great. Blah 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 blah. You know, on a Friday night, I say, do me a favor. Tomorrow, I want you to listen for the thing that I say that makes the most difference in your life, and I want to hear what that is. And I want you to also listen for the thing that you think is just stupid and makes no difference whatsoever, and tell me about that. Because I also believe that, you know, it's absolutely irresponsible to be asked to lead a meeting anywhere and to show up and go, um, you know, I was asked six months ago, I don't really know what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, uh, you know, um, just don't know, um, right? And so... I take this, this this opportunity and gift seriously and that when we're asked to do this, what we're being asked to do is to carry a message of, of hope with some depth and weight. And I'm interested in knowing uh, what hits home and what doesn't, which ones are the direct hits, which ones are near misses. And I think that that's just responsible. And, and overdoing that and being open to, to feedback, hopefully... Um, we all get better at carrying AA's message and I'm not telling a bunch of untidy stories that don't make any sense where I'm meandering into the universe um, because I've told enough of those and I, and I told you about one of them with the waves and the wind and the, that you all pull me aside and go, stop it, that's stupid. You know, we all get it, just God. <laughs> well, Jerry... Last night you spoke of step three and your belief slash experience is we can't take our will back once we give it to God. Can you explain, expand on that a bit more? Yeah. So what I meant to say, what, <laughs> what I think I said was the third step decision, that decision to turn my life over to God, I've never taken that back. Um. And that was a that was a commitment that I made to the program. That was a commitment I made to uh, the power that I believed in at that time. And I believe that if I take that back, then you know I'll I'll be I'll be drinking. Um, I mean, the, and I think maybe I did make a probably a sarcastic comment about turn it over and take it back. Turn it over and take it back. Turn it over and take it back. I, I mean, I, I personally don't understand that. I mean, I. I see that that decision is a decision to, to stay with the program and then you live life and you know through life you make mistakes and you learn and that's just part of life to tie that into you know not doing the third step I, that's just not my experience um, I mean I could even get real mystical and you're real deep and there's really not even any mistakes in life they're all just learning experiences I do the best that I can and hopefully, I, if I'm in the middle of A, I learn from what happened and I move on to something else. Um, I don't do that mental gymnastics of, of turning it over and taking it back, turning it over and taking it back. It's just, it's just not productive. So. Take it yeah. 
Are there areas you still struggle? Well, I didn't pack my underwear and socks yesterday when I came here, so I'm wearing the same. Uh, I, uh, uh, I made a commitment to do something tomorrow afternoon, and my wife doesn't know about it. She's going to get mad when I call her on the way home and tell her about it. Um, so sometimes I'll overcommit to stuff, um, and I don't run it by her all the time. I've gotten better at that. Um, other areas that I struggle with, Rich doesn't struggle with anything. I mean, look at him. He's, huh? He's a spiritual giant. You got anything? Oh, yeah. Um, I think the, the better question is, how long do you find your struggles are today versus when you got here? Not like, do you have any? I mean, they're going to happen. Uh, all the time, every day. It's it's what do I do with them? How do I get from struggle to undisturbed? And how long does that take? Uh, and a good day for me is a day when I get undisturbed quicker. You know, that's the AA touchdown, right? Um, wasn't disturbed all day. It came in and whoosh, by nine o'clock I was good. And that happens some days. And there's other days that it takes weeks and months that I want to wrestle around and uh, I often fall victim to the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction out of life if we only manage well the one I most recently um, I've struggled with is um, my wife wants to have a second child and I told you about Isabella and I'm scared that's what it really comes down to and we're at a place with my job I'm a government worker you know I've been taught about uh, financial responsibility and stewardship of God's money through this whole deal and uh, and that part of that is that there's two ways to be okay you know you can make more or spend less and in my case there's not a make more it's I can't go make the big sale you know my I get the same check every two weeks which it's, it's real clear to my family what we can live within um, and, and then I get into the managerial role you know of uh, trying to manage it, forgetting, you know, that, hey, this is God's money. That's not mine in the first place. And I start thinking about, okay, we got Isabella. We got her college paid for. We're going to be able to pay for a second kid. Oh, my God, not going to be able to afford college. It's going to mess up the apple cart that I've arranged. I've got things to where my family's comfortable. My wife's happy. Isabella's taking care of a second child. It's going to screw that all up. That would just be irresponsible. Bring a kid into this world to have a screwed up life. Blah, 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 right? And, um, and then I pointed out, you know, as soon as I voiced that embarrassing thought chain uh, to anybody with a spiritual life going on, you know, because you know, that the worst thought in Alcoholics Anonymous is I shouldn't be thinking like this or feeling like this because I got a year sober. Or I shouldn't be thinking like this or acting like or feeling like this because I got 10 years sober or 20, fill in the blank. And I think that the longer we're sober... Um, the more powerful that becomes. Like, my gosh, I can't stand here with 40 years sober uh, and tell you that I'm scared to death of whatever, right? Like, I'm just supposed to have it all figured out. I mean, that's, I think that's what kills us, you know, is the egos linking that up. And um, anyways, I, I shared that finally after struggling with it for about a week because it was so embarrassing and kind of, I mean, who's supposed to say out loud, I, I don't think I want to have a second child, <gasps> Did you just say that? I mean, I'm supposed to say being a father is the best thing that's ever had. It's unlimited freedom. Oh my God, this is great, right? I can't wait to have a second. This, I mean, and um, you know, that's the party line, right? And the truth is, I'm scared. 
And then I say that and they go, oh, so what I'm hearing you say is that God takes care of guys with one child, but guys that have two are screwed. <laughs> and then I go, oh, <laughs> gosh, that was stupid, right? And uh, oh, yeah, that whole God thing. <laughs> I was trying to figure it all out and do a spreadsheet of parenthood and, you know, figure the numbers out, you know, and I mean, that isn't that falling victim to the delusion that I'm going to wrest satisfaction out of life if I manage? Well, and I, I can slip into that and you all can pull me out when you laugh at me and say something. That was last two weeks ago struggle, you know. That's, describe how your relationship with sponsees continue once you've gone through the steps initially, do you continue with meeting on a regular basis, et cetera, I think. You want to do that one first? What is that? Oh, et cetera, et cetera. I think. Well, there's no, there's, for me, there's no one size fits all. Um, I typically would, after we get through the steps, I'll typically read the traditions with the sponsee. So I, uh, I, I was taught and believed that those traditions are, are very helpful with everyday life. And I mean, they're certainly important to the group and I'll call the survival of AA, but they also apply in, in our personal lives. And um, for me, they're probably more instructive on how to live sober and how to get along with people than the steps are. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll work to the, to the traditions with a, with a sponsee. I've got some, some guys that are interested in history and interested in other stuff. And I mean, there's some people that I've sponsored that I've, I've met, met with for years weekly. I mean, we'll miss. We'll miss weeks, but that we just continue to meet. We continue to meet. We read literature. We read Comes of Age. <laughs> we might read uh, a, a, another book. Um, and then I got some folks that, you know, that once we get through the steps that it's just kind of, uh, we, we, we see each other at the, at the group and we talk on the phone and they call me as needed. Um, so, I mean, it just depends. It, again, it's kind of back to the family. I'll stay involved as much as they, as they want me to stay involved. Um, I'll meet with them as much as they, as they want to meet. It just depends on the, uh, on the situation. So... Same. What my AA life looks like um, at this phase of the game, and this is me now. You know, I'm sure in five years it'll be different. Um, Monday night is the night that uh, I always have a new person that has, you know, weeks or months or every now and then, uh, 20 years sober and has never been through our steps. Um, so the person that it's their first trip through the steps, and I meet with them Mondays from seven to nine o'clock. Isabella goes to bed at seven. I give her a bath. Uh, at 6.30, getting ready for bed. My wife puts her to bed. We kiss. My wife stays downstairs, and she gives me the upstairs of our house uh, with me and that new person. 7 to 9 every Monday night. Tuesday night's my home group. I'm the coffee maker. Um, so I'm, I'm there from about 7 to 10 total between making coffee to meeting and doing something afterwards. Uh, Wednesday's date night with my wife. My mother or mother-in-law watches Isabella. I take my wife on a date somewhere on Wednesdays. Uh, Thursday's the primary purpose group, big book study. That meets from 7 to 8.30. It's an hour and a half meeting where we study the book and we go out to dinner afterwards. My wife usually joins us uh, for dinner and my mom comes over to the house while Isabella's sleeping. And um, 
Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday are uh, wife and kid time, whatever they want to do, except for one weekend a month. I'll do something like this uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to do it twice a month, uh, but my sponsor said now, being a father, uh, once a month is good. You, you, the, uh, plenty, you say yes to the first thing, no to everything else. It's more important that you're, if none of them care at home that you do this. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, you know, what could matter less to my daughter, right? Like, she wants to see dad. Um, said that I'm there so that that's a good balance and in that process so the first time through the steps a guy gets every Monday night of my life until he's through the steps you know every single Monday night of my life until he's through and then if they want to call I'm not a I don't I don't dictate phone times and call some of these guys I kind of look at it my real job is to put their hand in God's and say good luck which is what the steps do um, go get them tiger uh, out of those I don't know how many people I've done that with. I'm going to guess between 50 and 100 over the years at this point. Uh, some of those, about five or 10, I'm lifelong friends because we have common interests. They love going to AA conferences. They ride with me. They're my road dog. We share hotel rooms. Uh, we share spiritual practices. We meditate. Some of them like surfing. We surf together. Uh, some of them I play golf with. Some of them I can't stand. Um, I, I, respond to, I, I can't stand. We have nothing in common. Um, I, I don't like anything about their life. I don't like how they live it. I don't like listening to them. I don't like being around them. Um, but none of that matters. My job was to you know, get them through the trip, put their hand in God, and say, I wish you well. Um, so I think a lot of it just comes down to common interests and um, what they want of, of me and, and with me. That's it. That's it. Any more questions? Don't be shy. Why do some guys get such a beautiful full head of hair and others don't? <laughs> Change meditation. That's fine. Thank you all. This yeah, has been thanks. great.